I were to think of the hardest job in the world, I would probably put owning a restaurant at the top of that list. It might not be the very top. It would absolutely be in the top five. This stems from my lack of knowledge running a restaurant, literally running a business itself, abiding by incredibly tight margins, hiring staff, looking for specific talent, and creating something that is unique enough that you draw your customer, creating something that's unique enough you can compete with the inevitable numerous other restaurants on your block. If I were to think of the hardest job in the world, being a restaurateur is definitely up there. I had to find out if I was onto something. So I invited Patrick McMurray, affectionately known as Patty McMurray, who is the world champion oyster shucker, but he's also an entrepreneur and restaurateur, and he's owned two in his life, two restaurants. Patty just about proved my theory on owning a restaurant being one of the toughest jobs in the world, but I did not give enough credit to the love that goes into that and the passion that you pour into this business, because as he says, if you don't love it, don't do it. He says a lot to go with that as well and has so much good advice for starting a restaurant, understanding if it's for you, what you should focus on, the shit you might have to deal with, and how to just pursue the passion of it. What have we done? I am very excited for this episode. This is the You're Not Qualified podcast. I'm Courtney Heater. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for coming back if this is not the first time that you're listening. I'm excited to jump right into this conversation with Patty. It's a good time. Let's go. Out of the frying pan. And into the fire. Patty McMurray is with us tonight, and based on the conversation so far, I think this is going to be an excellent one. You are self-taught, scratch-built restaurant owner, and my favorite part of your whole bio, world champion oyster shucker, and I'm so excited to get into all of your hats that you wear, and can't wait to talk about them. Look, it's the World Cup. <laughs> that looks very breakable. It is. It holds three and a half pints of Guinness. Oh my I only hold that because I filled it up after I won the world championships. I took it to the bartender. I said, fill her up. He says, are you sure? I go, oh yeah, Guinness it is. And so it only fits oh. Guinness. There's no other liquid that goes into that. It, uh, the, the, what happens to the other liquid? It just comes out the bottom? No, it's just the, what's qualified. There's only one liquid uh. that's qualified. Oh, it's because the world championships is in Galway, Ireland. And so, of course, and this is Galway Crystal, so of course, so all you're going to have is Guinness in this. And now I take the cup down every so often. If I'm going to actually compete or pre-game or whatnot, you fill up the cup and you drink from the cup. There's only one thing to do with it. You, other than put it on the display in this little shack that we have here. Wow. 
So you yeah. have the award for it and everything. I'm a little yeah. disappointed that yeah. you didn't fill it for, with Guinness for this. Yeah. No, I don't have three and a half pints of Guinness kicking around any, anymore. <laughs> now we're into a little bit more whiskey and stuff as well. We're fine with that. That'd be a lot of whiskey. Oh, God. Too much. That'd put you in the yeah. hospital. That's not yeah. good. That would. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so let's get started with your journey into becoming a restaurant owner. I reached out to you because you are in the best way possible, so very unqualified for everything that you do <laughs> and you're self-taught, which is so cool for a restaurant entrepreneur. Let's talk about your restaurants in Toronto to start. Absolutely. The restaurants are no longer, and this is even pre, mm. pre-COVID. I had to, I wrapped them up for very specific reasons very as business does and business comes and goes and type of thing you learn about this as you come along i and yes i am self-taught i have a good degree in kinesiology and sports sciences Random. and then the other side of a five-year university degree that's supposed to be for four years and i told my parents yes now i'm going to be in the restaurant trade and they're like we're so happy that we've done this and i'm like yeah but i really wanted to be a teacher in the long run type of thing but i never got into the teaching now i'm teaching but i teach culinary and hospitality because I've lived 25, 30 years in the food service end of things and actually building from scratch restaurants. And it's a weird situation how it happened. This is back in the 1990s when I had a family friend dining at a restaurant that I was working at. It was an oyster bar because I was doing oysters at that time. And we're in the construction trade. But we're at a point in our lives where we're not retiring, but we want to build something for ourselves. And we love food. He was a good Italian fella, Tom Flacavento, Sicilian, you know, really good Italian. He loves the seafood. He loves what I was doing with oysters. He goes, why don't we build a restaurant? We build it and you run it. Can you do that? I'm like, sure. Yeah, I can do that. (laughs) I did have an idea. Like I've been managing these restaurants Mm -hmm. for eight, but this is a kid who's under 30 years old. Who says, yeah, oh, yeah, I can run a restaurant. I've been doing this for eight years. Should be fun. Should How be different easy. could it be? Yeah. I'm completely unqualified. Let's do this. So <laughs> that's how it tripped into it. And then I learned about building and building codes and scratch build everything and then hiring people and getting the right team around you and then having your ideals and your philosophies of what you want to do. I teach this now. I teach entrepreneurship at culinary college called Centennial in Toronto. And this is one of the classes that I teach about being an entrepreneur. And the first thing I tell my chefs, I go, okay, because I teach chefs as well. If you want to own your own restaurant, who wants to do that? You want to be a chef? You want to be a manager? That's cool. Oh, you three over there want to own your own restaurant? Great. Go clean the bathrooms right now. Go. Go clean them. Don't complain. Come back and then we'll talk. If you can do that, if you can clean the bathrooms here, then you can be a restaurant owner because that's the absolute glory. You are cleaning bathrooms. At some point in time in your life of building a restaurant, you'll be doing that. Now, if you're smart about it, you'll end up hiring someone that's going to be able to do that. But you have to manage that stuff regardless. The stuff has to be pristine. I've been in the industry, in the food service industry, since I was really 14. My first job was a butcher's apprentice. And then at 16, restaurant trade. And then I built that up. And through university, I ran all the pubs at university. I was, there was no social director. So I said, I want to be a social director. I'll run all the pubs and all the special events. Little did I know I was actually training myself into what is actually a career. Because if I scan back to when I was 16 in high school, and your guidance counselor, what do you want to do when you grow up? I guess I want to be a lumberjack. That's what I want to do. No, there's no. Okay, so I'll be a teacher. Both my parents were teachers. 
So they, they were one of my major inspirations because when teachers back in the day in the 70s and 80s, they have those two months off when there's no school. And we as children flew with them because they wanted to go to England and Ireland and Scotland and Europe. So we went to Europe every summer. We were, the, we were probably the most Canadian kids. They go to camp. They get kicked out of the house. They go live in a camp for, and they become wildlings for four or eight weeks. <laughs> they come back dirty. They've never changed any of their clothes. They have a stack of clothing to change. They mm -hmm. never change once. They're dirty creatures. We love children. It's true. I love it. I loved camp. That sounds like heaven. And I never experienced the camp until university, which was bonus for university because kinesiology, we actually did a camp, winter camp and summer camp. This, that's another thing. But we would go traveling. And so as a young kid, I learned that this summer thing was really cool. I want to be this teacher to have this time off. And that was where I thought, no, that's a real career. But I found out when I started working when I was 14, I got to love this food stuff. And I love working in the restaurant at 16. And imagine the age, 16 years old, my parents say, okay, so you're going to work downtown. Cool. No problem. You're going on the subway Friday afternoon, about four o'clock to get downtown, to get there for five o'clock so that you can work from five o'clock till midnight and come back in the subway by yourself at 16. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> Enjoy that. And so I, my kids, I'm like, there's no way. You're staying right here. Oh, Stay yeah. Right. You're so protective <laughs> that actual parents. So I was fortunate that my parents let me go and do all this type of stuff. But I was also at a top end restaurant. I wasn't at McDonald's or anything. We love McDonald's. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But I was at a, fi a fine dining restaurant called Beaujolais. So I learned about fine dining and what to do at the restaurant level front of house. At the age of 16, I thought this is really fun. This so what I want to okay here. I've got my life plan then. I'll go, work is nine to five, Monday to Friday, two months off. That's called teaching. So we're gonna do mm -hmm. teaching as a real job. But really, what I want to do is a restaurant because people love it, they have fun, they enjoy everything, and mm -hmm. I'll do that when I retire. So I'll make enough money as a teacher. <laughs> and then when I retire, <laughs> I'll have enough money to build a restaurant. And one of my favorite friends who was a patron at Starfish, my first restaurant for a long time, he was a, a, a Wall Street. In Toronto, we have the Bay Street. And in New York, you have Wall Street. He was a Bay Street boy. So he knew all about the numbers. And we talked to him about restaurants one day. He goes, Patrick, no one has enough money. No one has enough money to start a restaurant. <laughs> it's one of those things that it's just a, it's a business that you do for passion. It can be a complete and utter money pit, and it's an absolute ballet dance choreography of how do you make things work all the time so that you actually, at the end of it, turn around and make three or four percent on the dollar. Ugh. It's a weird business to be in, but you do it out of passion. So that's my long answer. I'm sorry. Long answers is how I go. No, but you know what? You got so much material in there. Because I was really curious about, yeah, why you chose kinesiology when you wanted to be a restaurant owner. So that no, answers that. At 16, I didn't, restaurant, no, that's fun. That's not ah. a, dude, back in my, if I actually listened to, or the guidance counselor in the 1970s, if they actually listened to the children at that point in time. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Literally at school. Okay, this is like mind warp time frame wise if they listen to what i was thinking of they're liking it so maybe you should do this chef school thing there was virtually no chef schools even back then mm -hmm. so it wasn't something that was i considered and nor was oh, it in, in North america is it actually a real business now if you go to paris if you go to france 
as a server, as a waiter, that's an actual, that's an actual qualified business that you can be in. Like you're trained well and a sommelier is someone who is respected in the community. And it's something that's really cool. Whereas here, when I was growing up, eh, restaurants, whatever, it wasn't even really good back in the 70s and 80s. It really blossomed to 80s and 90s here in Toronto. And when I was opening up in 2000, 2001, I was fortunate because I had this concept that I wanted to do and it worked really well. But it also happened in a moment in my life where I was applying to teacher's college and I didn't get in. So mm. after I didn't get in, I just started working in the industry because I wanted to work someplace fun after working at the high-end restaurants as I had been since I was 16, right? till I was about 18, 19. And I wanted to work someplace. I ended up working at an oyster bar, Rodney's Oyster House in Toronto. That's where the funness came in. And it could be food and fun. And then actually I figured out after a couple of years ago, I can actually pay the bills. I can live a life. I'm married to my wife. We're having a kid and we can actually finish the, what is that? This is a, oh my goodness, it's a career. It's not what you thought. Yeah, it's so much better. And I'm, I thought it was a retirement idea, big bad. Yeah, that's right. So you were like, I'm going to do the normal thing, the career thing, and then have my fun when I retire. But I'm so happy that it didn't work out that way because obviously you lived the life that you are meant and wanted to live. It, like well, happenstance. It, it's an absolute, it is a life. And it is a life that begets stories upon stories upon stories, which is why we're talking. But yeah. there's so many things that go on in the restaurant. There's so many things that go on in any business and anything that you're passionate about. I happen to be very passionate about food. And I didn't think like that when I was a kid growing up. I liked food and I didn't think about cooking it or anything. It was something that, that I just, when I went traveling, was really fun to go see. Like when we were in Europe, in England, we'd go and we'd have the, I would have the duck a l'orange as a kid. It was like 12 years old. Oh, the duck. Yeah. Duck a l'orange would be really nice. Thank you. Napkin. Yes. I'm fine with that. He's cutting it. Oh, the blue cheese would be really no nice. No kid's menu for you. <laughs> Seriously. I must've been, but back in those days as well, kids flew for free and they mm-hmm. st- my parents figured this out. And th- before internet, mom would make phone calls and write letters to hotels where kids could stay for free. Invent- my parents were antique dealer- dealers too, which is why the whole room looks like this. So all of these things is stuff from my restaurant life. This is, that's my Guinness Book. That's when I won the world championships. That's my first sign for my first restaurant. When you're, you're in the food service world, you end up being art- artistic. You are basically, it is an arts form, which is why they call it culinary arts. Eyes eat first, then the nose, then the palate. It really goes in succession. So you're a bit of an artist when it comes down to them and what you put into when you're working, you're working with listening to a chef and an owner and their vision and you translate their vision with your work. You learn about that. And if you ever want to have your own place, which a lot of people do, but when they find out how much work it is, Mm. they go, oh, I really liked it when I punched a clock. Yeah. You want a paycheck. You want it to be. Like just not a draining of your savings, but an adding to your savings. Really curious about this Sicilian fellow that asked you to start this restaurant. Had he had a restaurant before? Tom Flacavento, no, he never had a restaurant. He was in construction. He was the money man. He figured out money. Like, how do you figure out financing building? Forget about it. I don't know how to do that. But he did. He knew how to do all that. But he also really liked his food. So he never really got it. He wanted to get into a restaurant earlier in his life but never really did and just it's one of those moments where it's like hey we want to build a restaurant 
you're good at this. Why don't you run it and we'll build it. We'll work together as a team. I'm like, love it. Normally it's us, the chefs and the people who really want to do it have to make the pitch. I've never had to make a pitch. (laughs) I've been fortunate. And that's the thing when I lock on wood, because like when opportunity knocks, I ask my chefs, if opportunity go down that road, when the door opens up all of a sudden, you don't know why or where it's going to go. Nobody knows where it's going to go, but walk down the road as far as you can. If it's an opportunity that does not end up costing you money, let's go see where it's going to go. I have 12 opportunities right now that I'm working on while I'm doing other things. It's how you get into this multitasking universe type of thing. It's ridiculous. It's, it hurts your head sometimes, but so, it's also fun because you yeah. never know. He was a good and great influence because he really liked his food. Now, he also allowed us carte blanche. He did not say, you have to have, it's going to be Italian flavor because I'm from Sicily. I want to have it as an Italian restaurant. He said, no, you just, you do what you do. You do. It's, so I said, it's going to be an oysters. Oyster. Yeah, yeah. So at the time, I was very good at it. I had just won Canadian championships in oyster shucking, and I was really good at what I was doing in Oyster World. When I when we finally opened up Starfish, which was my first restaurant, I won the Canadian championships again, and then I won the world championships that year. So in 2002, pre-social media, you had media, which was newspapers, magazines, that's it. And of course, television. Ultimate goal is to hit on television somehow. And winning the world championships allowed me to put a press release out saying, hey, I won the world championships. Nobody knew what the heck that was because I'm the only Canadian ever to have won it. There's two Americans that have ever won it. And it's been going on for 65 plus years. So it really garnered a lot of information. Then a month later, I was invited to go onto a Food Network television pushing. She said, come on TV and do this oyster thing. I go, my wife's favorite line, when you're watching oyster shucking in competition, it's like watching paint dry. So I'd rather not watch it at all. It's not really a good TV thing. And I told her that. I said, she goes, come on the TV show. This is Christine. I go, listen, there's this Guinness book thing that I saw. It's set at 27 oysters a minute. I'll bring a whack of oysters. It's a minute long. Let's see how many I can open up. They go, how many do you think you do? I go, no idea. Zero. No, I did zero. I just did, I did 30 oysters in two minutes and 34 seconds. She goes, perfect. Let's do this. So a week later, they folding table on set, put out oysters, three, two, one, go pop. I end up doing 33 oysters in a minute, technically breaking to go. What does that mean? I go, that technically breaks the Guinness book, which was set at 27. So we took the video, we took some letters, we sent it off to Guinness. One year later, they sent a letter going, congratulations, you have a record. The Guinness book, opens up so many more doors. It's ridiculous. You can really get phone calls out of the blue. Gordon Ramsay calls me out of the blue. Martha Stewart Snoop Dogg calls me out of the blue because they all want because I have a Guinness book and I can do something in under a minute. It's not the most in an hour. Takes too long on television. 60 seconds. Wow. Sweet spot. It works really well in television world. So I've had those opportunities and I've literally had the record since 2002 and I've broken it three times. So I've got now 39 oysters in a minute. I think I can do 44, but I'm not going to try it until someone knocks on the door. So you have these people knocking on your door to do this record. Are you having people that are trying to break your record? 
I, every so often you get them go, hey, Friday, we're going to try to break your record mm. at the state fair. I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. Good luck with that. I don't hear back from them. I hear three, I call them back like three, four weeks later. How'd that go? Like, oh, it was all right. We did 19. 19. <laughs> yeah, I know there's there's a specific technique. I believe it. Kinesiology comes into play. I have my own little knife. Now this is my kinesiology degree as in a nutshell is my knife. You made it. Yeah. Yeah, I made the, I made it. This is an original. This is how I came up with this idea. I had wow. a knife that fit my hand exactly. See, this one is molded to my hand. It looks Listen, like it's Play-Doh, like it's that. It, it's a, it's called epoxy putty. It's a plumber's putty. Ah. So what I wanted is a mold that would fit my hand that I would give to a knife maker to fit it. And I found this putty that sets up as strong as steel at the hardware store. I said, so if I put a steel blade into this and it holds my hand, will so I started making them. And this is what I did. This is in the 90s. So I mean, this is the Guinness book. So this one I made, this one, Gordon Ramsay's left-handed. So the concept of the Guinness book, when Gordon Ramsay's television show called me, they said, you're going to go against Chef Ramsay. You're going to teach him how to shock oysters. You're going to go head to head and hopefully he'll beat you. I went, sure, let's do this. But by the time he gets my record at 38, I'll be at 44. So if he's okay with losing and being taught how to do this, oh, I'm okay to do it. So I made him a knife. He's got a left-handed one. This is the right-handed one. So it fits my hand exactly. His hand pretty close, et cetera. But long story short, this is what's in the market now. So this is all designed on my kinesiology knowledge of biomechanics and ergodynamics. Oh, where See, that stuff, is chef's kiss. That's chef's kiss. You're combining your transferable yeah. skills into something. It only took 15 years to understand that I'm actually doing what I'm doing with my kinesiology. Yeah. In the sports science end of things, the sport of oyster shucking, when I started into the oyster world, I looked at it right away and I was like, you guys are all inefficient. You're using one hand to pick up an oyster, put it down, you hold it with this hand, you shuck it. Then you take this oyster, put it here. Then you go and grab this one. This one's doing nothing. This one's separate the two hands, do this, then do this. Once I figured out how to do that, my technique, the times started dropping from two minutes to a minute and a half to a minute on 12 oysters based on the fact that the techniques become more efficient and streamlined. And now everybody uses the same technique in that sense and because they've learned that, oh, like the time that I, I came up with another technique that worked on the angle of the oyster, et cetera, and I turned it around and I dropped another 30 seconds off my flat and some of the number one shuckers, they all looked at me and they go, what did you do now? Tell me. So I showed them, oh, yeah, it's math, it's anatomy. It's always going to be the same on the oyster. That's the fun thing. It's set up like this, teardrop shape, the little block spots where you got to shuck it underneath. And if the, all of the oysters are exactly the same anatomy, then the math is relatively the same. Each one will be individual like a snowflake, but it's relatively the same. There's going to be a center point that you look at. And so I came up with the idea of making it work like that. And that's where I got into the hybridization of creating festival shucking contests and then working it and making sure it's more efficient and you can make it better better as you go and that's where this happened this only happened this is in retail now because i had a customer on the bar that saw this and saw me working he's tell me your story so blah 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 five hours later enjoying supper on a friday night he tells me he's the owner of swiss mar and his buddy that's sitting with is victoria knox swiss army which is oh. swiss Right. And I'm like, yeah, I know both of your companies. They go, but it's random. <laughs> not totally random. 
this is where I totally tell everybody who's my chefs that I'm teaching, behave and talk to people like you're talking to your grandma. Be nice. It's all you have to be in this world. Be nice because you never know what opportunity comes in. If I was like, because it's Friday night, this guy was asking me a lot of good, dude, I'm, out, I'm busy here. I can't talk to you about this mm -hmm. right now, blah, blah, blah. Opportunity goes. But because I spent the time, I told the stories, they have their conversation. I kept some oysters going, blah, blah, blah. Kept that going and had that ability to have conversation and work at a heavy, busy Friday night. They're like, would you like to put this in retail? I'm like, I got nothing better to do with this thing. Like, why what? not? Why not? Yeah, why not? So it's been in retail for like almost 10 years now. We just got a big group in Europe. They want to take it and put it on in, in Europe. Because our style of shucking is different here in North America than it is Europe. Don't even get me into the, the differences of oysters between different continents. But again, with the restaurant, you never know who walks in the door. At Starfish, we would have Lawyer's Day, Judge's Day, Publisher's Day. And on Publisher's Day, one day, a publisher came in and goes, hey, Patrick, would you like to write a book? I'm like, yes. And in my head, I'm like, you don't know how to write a book. There's no way. You know, you know, how do you write a book? I go, yeah, okay, cool. I'll write a book. And I go, I don't know what I want to do yet. I kept writing stuff down of what my ideas were. And then finally, about a year later, she came back in. I go, got it. Let I'm ready to go. Let's figure out this book thing. So you go, super. The next week, she gave me an editor who would work with me because I said, I don't know what to do here. You have to help me out. Great, get an editor. So I talked to the editor. She goes, okay, so what you want to do first is give me a table of contents. And I'm like, I can do that. I got a table of contents. Okay. So I wrote the table of contents. It's a one pager, whoop, 10 chapters. There you go. Now what? She goes, oh, that looks good. Okay. What do you do? What, do, what now? What now? She goes, fill it in. Pick a chapter, fill it in. I'm like, but, 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 but how? She goes, just write it. Just think about what you're thinking. And so the way I thought about it, I ended up doing a gig in Bangkok. This is where I do worldly trips now. And I do a 10-day gig in Bangkok. And while I'm in Bangkok, one, I'm, I'm working at the Oyster Bar and doing oystery things for the special events. But then at, at during the day, I just hold up in the hotel room going like this. And this is how I type with two fingers. So <laughs> my mom types. Uh, I know my kids are now like this. They go, and they've got, but now everyone just talks to the computer. Yeah. And never now AI has actually designed everything and written so four more books now. So who knows? But that's how it went. And it, I was fortunate in the sense again, I don't know who comes in the door, and it could be anyone. So when you are doing anything, talk to people like you're talking to your grandmother mm -hmm. with respect and happiness, and you never know what's going to come back to you. You really don't. Yeah. And who these people are. Like I fired customers and I fired one guy once who was like super high up in, in the movie world and whatnot. And I had no idea who he was, but he was misbehaving and he understood that he was misbehaving, but I turned him around afterwards because the food was good and my stories were good. And now we're good friends. So you can turn it around as well, but just be nice, behave yourself. Be That's nice all and say yeah. yes. You said yeah. yes to opportunity after opportunity, even if you didn't know what the hell you were doing, but you also asked for help. And that's yeah. awesome. I'm like, here I am. Okay, so I go back to Ireland. My parent, my grandparents come from County Antrim. And I've been to Ireland once in the 70s. Like my parents, here's a, another great parental tip. In the middle of the troubles in Ireland, Belfast, my dad and mom say, hey, we're going to go to Belfast. 
I know there's a bit of a war going on up there, but that's fine. We're going to go see our old family farmstead. So we ended up going there and I'm a 10 year old kid. And I just, I know it just happened. It was the seventies. So I remember going there, but I had an opportunity after I opened up my Irish bar, Kaylee cottage and to go back to Hillsborough and to County Antrim. I said, I'm going to go find out where the farm is. So I drove and I had some two clients with me. It was a longer story, but we're driving. I told her, I said, all right, we're in Muckamore, which is like two road town. That's it. So there's two roads and a one in one out. And so I go, I'm going to do the most unmanly thing right now. I'm going to the, I'm going to that garage. I'm going to ask for directions. So I went in and I lined up in the garage with, there was two lines. It was busy. I don't know why. And I lined up and there's two 16 year old lads who are at the cash register. I got to my turn. He goes, yeah, what do you want? I go, strange question. I'm looking for summer seat cottage. And he looks over at his buddy. He goes, isn't that your parents' place? They go, yeah, are you a McMurray or are you a Gray? I go, I'm a McMurray. He goes, you'll go down the street, up here, turn to the left, two strokes down, you'll be there. Mom and dad are probably there, but maybe not. And so we found it. So I will ask for help when I when I will always need it. I'm absolutely the person who never knows exactly what's going on. And you can't get to where you're going to go unless you have a great team around you as well. Surround, mm -hmm. You've heard this, I'm sure, a hundred million times. Surround yourself with good people. I'm not very good at numbers. My wife is better at numbers. And so you also, she's better at the books. So she would, in our teamwork, in the restaurant life, in the family restaurant life, she would take care of the numbers and I would come up with the insane ideas. It was, that was what we would do. That was our restaurant life as it is. It's beautiful. It's such a beautiful life. I have a question about Gordon Ramsay. So you know him and I love the show with Sean Evans, Hot Ones love it it's that hot wing eating show and gordon ramsay's oh. episode is one of my favorites he curses the entire time he drinks lime juice from the fucking bottle he's unhinged but yeah. what is he like what is he like off camera now granted i've only met him once yeah well, twice actually for the length of the show that it was on it was f word live it was an eight-week show he's a super nice guy he's a very smart businessman that's all there is to it if you can figure out this th that world which is television world look i'm in my furnace room doesn't look like i'm in my furnace room i'm looking it look like to me it looks like my little pub or yeah. i'm in a place really cool. oh yeah yeah people have a certain perspective so if he's in hell's kitchen he's yelling at you and calling you a donut and throwing pans at you and the whole works flip to the next channel he's on master chef's children he's going all right kids let's go let's make some good stuff he will be hard with them but it's also you're learning about this but he'll also be parental soft with them you look at him on his instagram and his tiktok whatever brilliant business person is what he is he can actually cook. He can actually handle the business and he can actually talk about it. And But in real life, we had a nice conversation. If you look at my bio, there's a black and white picture, which was from a friend of mine. Long camera on the day that I was doing the Guinness Book against him. Just me and him in the behind the scenes in between takes, just having a combo about oysters. And we're just like, oh, this is a beautiful day. And having a good old, but oysters are looking pretty good today. So what's new in the restaurants? We're just blah, blah, blah. I've never, I've met him once. Really, that's it. So I don't really know him. But I, what I tell people is that in reality, he's a real, really good business person. So he will, when he has to turn on the donut thing, you are a donut, he'll turn it on. And I have my own personas. 
as well. I'm a father, and but I'm a goofball, a doggy parent, and take care of the doggo, and a husband, and I, so I have my own family. I teach at school, so I have my teaching persona. But when I'm in the restaurant, I can I read the room really well. As a restaurateur, you need to learn how to read the room. Who's your clients today, Monday or Friday? There's a different pile of people who dine out on Mondays than they do on Fridays. There's a different style of them. So there's a different style of music. There's a different, it's the same menu, same flavors, different music, maybe different lighting and a different way that you're going to speak with people as well. Sometimes people want to want super fancy service and you're just like, how can I, what can I get for you today? And the other ones want super casual. We can turn it on anytime we want to. So it's learning that art of, it's almost like acting. That's why there's so many thespians in the restaurant trade because one, it's good, it's transient, they can get into acting, but they also can work on their own personalities. They can do so many different ones. And Ramsey, he's got his multiple different personalities as well. Look at what he's doing with the with the following suit with, is it Nat Geo, where he's do, traveling the world and going and seeing the foods, a little Anthony Bourdain moment type of thing. Yeah. He's great with that. And see, yeah, he's going to spit out food. That's one of his signature things. This is terrible. You're trying to kill me especially when he's eating weird different foods or trying to rescue a restaurant that's not doing so well. So he's got a lot of different, I'm just going to say he's very smart at what he does. He's got a good team too, proud by now. He's got to have to. Oh yeah, he's yeah he's going to have to, but I bet he strategically built that as a good businessman. As you said, that's really important. And that's Absolutely. amazing. So yeah. you touched on profit margins. You touched on very difficult aspects of running a restaurant. In my opinion, they have got to be some of the hardest restaurants to be successful in. Any business I would rather have, I would love to own a restaurant someday, but there's no way I have the gumption to deal with it. Tell me all about your tricks and tips for profit margin optimization, tips for standing out with all of this other business competition. What's it like? Those are great questions. And there's so many in the Pre, I live in a world pre-COVID. I've seen what happens during a pandemic lockdown. And now we're entering this post and how the restaurant has evolved and services evolved and is evolving into the tech world as well and AI and the whole works. Like it's such a vastly fast moving sector. If you don't, if you don't know your tech, and I know a lot of restaurateurs and chefs who don't know tech, they didn't want these are high-end restaurants that when pandemic closes down. I know one guy who, who switched into a burger joint in four days, turned over his website, turned over the restaurant. Now we're a burger joint, created this great brand called Dirty Burger. And he was a high-end joint up in Ottawa. It was fantastic. And he, I goes, he goes, I can live on like this for two years, three years, no problem. But they all switch back. He wants to switch back eventually and get into your own thing. But you can do a bit of both now. So you have to be very flexible with what you do. Like I said earlier, no one, you don't have enough money. How much money do you need to have to have kids? Nobody knows. A Nobody million said. dollars? Exactly. There's never enough money or never a perfect time to have kids. Same thing with restaurants. Yeah, there's mathematical equations and business-minded people will say you need this much money if you're going to buy a franchise. Those people have got it honed down to absolutely perfect numbers, $35,000 in, $5,000 a month payment for to them. You're going to buy the food from them. And this is where follow the book to the letter and you will make 10, 15% on the dollar that you invest. 
if you're doing it on your own, you can do anything you want to. No idea. And you should learn some stuff first. I did not. <laughs> I just <laughs> said it would be great. It would be, of course, and a lot of people are do that romance. There's many times pre-COVID, sorry, pre-pandemic, where I would see the top 10 restaurants of the city marked out. Yay, these are your top 10 restaurants. At least three of them, if not two of them for sure, if not three closed one year after because there were people who said, oh, it's glorious. Look at you, Patrick. Look at you running around and running a restaurant. Oh, it looks, you make it so easy. Oh yeah. And then once you get in, then you find out that Patrick's actually cleaning the bathroom, fixing the pipes, getting the food, washing hands in between, obviously, but doing all this type of stuff in between that you, and you know, the TikTok, I didn't want to work to 95. So I got my own business. Now I'm working 24 seven. Yes. Literally my phone was on all the time before I forwarded, like when I had starfish, I took reservations, but you learn this, there's things you learn. And I tell this to the people all the time, 30 seconds when you're taking reservation. Now it's all electronic with open table. When you take reservations verbally, 30 seconds, this comes from a great restaurateur in Toronto, Air Bavarian's restaurant, steakhouse, 30 seconds. If your customer is on the phone for more than 30 seconds, he's going to cost you money because they're humming and hawing about everything. Oh, I don't really know. Anyone who books a restaurant reservation in under 30 seconds, I need a table for four, Friday night, 7.30. I'm sorry, we're booked at 7.30. We can do eight o'clock. Eight o'clock's fine. Thanks very much. Okay, we'll see you then. Here's my phone number. Right, bye. 30 seconds. It's no, I need to have 7.30. You're not going to get it. Everybody in the world wants to dine at 7.30. So you learn about these things along the way. And it's no, there's not enough money to do it. You just got to learn that there's going to be, you have to have enough money. The, The technical, what they recommend is that you figure out how much it costs to carry a restaurant for a month. And then you have six months of cash in the bank as a buffer. So you have this cash flow that's going to come in selling, but you got to buy stuff as well. So you have the cash flow that's going out and it's going to come and go. And it does this little groovy little wave dance through the week, through the month. There's going to be Monday is slow. Friday is busy. Saturday, Sunday, if you're doing brunches, now you got lunches. It's completely ridiculous. Now, post pandemic, the major thing is labor. You, we One, we can't find labor before yeah. Starfish, I would open for lunches Monday through Friday because it was a downtown restaurant. At Cayley Cottage, my Irish bar, no lunches. I opened up for lunch on weekends because I had a 100-seat patio. Patios are everything in the outdoor world. That's a different thing altogether. Irish bar versus any other bar, there's a difference between Irish bar and everything else. Sports bar, sometimes people put them all together in the same thing, different, completely because it's a different target market. So you look at all those different things and the tile of food that you're going to bring in as well. I'm dealing with oysters as one of my major things. And it's a fresh market thing. You have to be very knowledgeable about what you're doing. Most people understand that I know what I'm doing with oysters. So they follow along and they do with it. And they come to and my food is matching with the level of the oyster that I got. But learning how to bring that into a restaurant, you have to get rid of it within seven days. Yeah. Oh, you're buying it a one day and you should get rid of it within seven. Really, it's going to be gone in two or three max. And you just learn about this rotation. It's constant. And mm-hmm. once you get in and once the machine starts going, first year I opened Starfish 2002, 2001 late. So 2002, 
my chef says, we all need a holiday. Why don't we all take one week off? I go, you know what? That's a great idea. Let's do that. And I never knew what it meant to have a week off of closure. So it takes three to four weeks to get the monster back up and running into another set where you're actually going where you were before closing for a week, one week, seven days. Yeah. So it's actually easier to stay open and hire extra people and create those extra shifts to just keep the monster going at the same rate and even consistency. So you learn about these things on the fly. You can teach them, you can talk about them, but each person's going to be individual in their own thought process of what they would like to do as well. And you really won't know till you get into it. But you, you need to get into it with eyes wide open, knowing that restaurant is a money pit. If you want to make money, you buy a franchise. You want to do money because the, the franchise has already done the stuff that I did yeah. 40 years ago. Tim Hortons, you, are, sorry, are you in Canada? No, I'm in Seattle, but I know Tim's. I know okay. Timmy. What are they? Oh my God, are they Timmy Bits? Tim Bits, the Tim whole Bits? works. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do with a donut hole? Let's sell them. So yeah. <laughs> they make Tim Bits the whole works. So Tim Hortons actually sells more than McDonald's. Tim Hortons group actually outsells like that's insane. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So franchising to buy into it. So those are the options as a chef student, a lot of them go, yeah, I would just want to buy, I want to do my own thing. I go, okay, find yourself some people with money Uh and have that. Then we can start talking, but if you want to do it and I've had another way I've watched other people do it where they bought one subway, then they bought a second subway. Then they bought a third subway. They sell those three. They bought another subway, but a um, master franchise. So they use it as a business to have that opportunity to let other people buy it. And I have one great restaurateur in the city, Franco Prevedello. This is back in the 80s and 90s as well. Franco is really well known here in Toronto. He said to me once at Starfish, when, he, when I opened up, he goes, beautiful job you're doing here. Don't fall in love with your first restaurant so much that you can sell it to build your second restaurant. And I'm like, I love this plate. Look at this. I'm not selling this. There's no way I'm selling this. But after a couple of years, I'm like, oh, I get it. I get it totally. You have to learn how to be able to separate yourself from the passion that you've created. Unless you're going to be there and you can, you, and what I really recommend is buy the building. Because it's really- up Oh, the, don't lease. Okay. Yeah. Your partners, there's two partners, the tax person and the landlord. Those are your partners you've never asked for. Everyone else you can choose. You can't choose these two. Tax The tax people, we love them. That's how business works. So we're going to be paying tax. Learn how to actually work really well with these people. Two is the landlord. And you never know if the landlord's going to go squirrely. I had two landlords. Mm-hmm. Downtown, the best ever. My Kaylee Cottage, he went squirrely. And so I basically had to close the business because he was a nut bar. Tried everything right down to, I offered him double rent. I'll give it, pay a double rent. No. What? Give me the price. I want to buy your building. I don't have the money. I will find the money, but let's buy the building. No, it's not for sale. Over my dead body, it's for sale. Not even triple what it's normally worth. It was ridiculous. So those are the things. It's fun. It's a gorgeous life to be in. You have to be very passionate about what you're doing. You have to be happy with what you're doing in the restaurant trade, because then it shows on the plate. And when it shows on the plate, then the customer gets happy. In my world, the customer comes third. Customer comes third because the ingredient has to be first. And then the staff who serve the ingredient. If those two things are happy, if you get the best ingredients that you can get, 
It doesn't have to be the most expensive. It has to be good quality, made, grown with love and passion from an organic farmer if you can find them locally, or just good stuff that you're getting from even a broadliner. If you go, if you're happy with the ingredients and you're happy with what you're doing, those two things make magic. The customer will be happy no matter what they ask of you, because they will always ask of you. It's I want to, and I've had this before. I'm in an oyster bar. I just want a burger. I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> there's no burgers on the menu. Okay, cranky pants. You want a burger? I'm going to get you a burger. 20 bucks for a burger though. This was back in the, this is the nineties. He goes, he was all cranky, right? I go, I'll get you a burger. No problem. Are you going to cry? I'll get you a tissue or I'll get you a burger. Your choice. He goes, okay, I'll get a burger. 20 bucks for a burger. No problem. So I called my buddy who was at the end of the bar, finished the shift. They go, Jeffrey, McDonald's, 59 cent hamburger. There's 20 bucks in it for you if you get it. He goes, no problem. Came back <laughs> later on a plate, little spin on the plate, on the table. Burgers up, 20 bucks, please. Now you're going to be happy. He goes, thank God. Because he was like, it's what hospitality is. Not yeah. to gouge him for 20 bucks, but it ended up being a funny story anyways. <laughs> yeah. So you have to be passionate about what you're doing. The ingredient comes first, then the staff, then the customer. That's just how it's going to work. I love you that. Need- yeah, love it, love it. It reminds me of the menu. I don't know if you've seen that movie yet. Such yes. a good movie, but the burger situation. And it's so good. The food comes first is a great segue into sustainability, which I would love to talk about before we close, because I yeah. know that you're passionate of it. It's a passion of mine. It, I think, should be, and I love that you say it should come first, and I really think it should because you're not going to have food in 20 years if you don't do it. It's just how it runs. So in terms of oysters and a restaurant owner, harvesting practices, sustainable methods, what are you, what are you looking for? Oysters are actually, with latest research oysters are the number one protein that is the most sustainable versus anything else including vegetables when you compare the gas emissions and what's required energy input and water input even plants and vegetables require a lot of irrigation whereas oysters do not to create a protein per ounce and and so it becomes one of those most planet-friendly proteins oysters mussels clams and seaweed that's my major push right now omc weed and those, that's my major push to showcase to people. And I, I showcase them in the sense because a lot of times I think oyster is a, it's a luxury item. It used to be 150 years ago, 200 years ago, it was a poor person's food. It was at, at every tavern in New York City just because it was salty so you could drink more beer. But you had 25 cents all you can eat on the oyster. And it was a thing. But now I look at it as more of a sustainable thing. And we as chefs and restaurateurs, we... Ingredients are number one. We show we we are telling the customers what to eat. All customers are like you're not telling me what to eat. I'm like actually I am. I bought all the food, so I made choices before you actually came here to choose this food to showcase to you. You create the <laughs> <Whatever>. menu. <laughs> but I am telling you what you're going to eat tonight if you come into my restaurant. Yep. But I'm not telling you that. But I'm telling you that it's a funny dichotomy when the customers finally realize that they're like. Oh, you're right. <laughs> because I'm coming to your restaurant. You bought all of the food. Yeah, all of it. All the cleaning equipment, everything in this room I bought. And so it's my choices that go into this. So I take my chefs, my chef students. I said, you have choices to make. Even when you're working for another chef, you can suggest, say, hey, this is an eco-friendly type of thing. This works well. Straws, 
turtles, no good. So let's not do straws no more. And look what the Canadian government was listening. No more single-use plastics. Now we have to figure out what we're going to do with all those other things that really help in the restaurant industry. It's insane what we have to think about. But uh, there's lots that you have to do. So when it comes down to the proteins and the protein sources, my oysters are my number one choice when I'm looking for something in a sustainable world. I look for something that's been aquaculture, farm-raised. Yes, farm-raised oysters is different than farm-raised fish. When people think about sustainability, they go, I'm not going to have a farm-raised fish. I have to have a wild fish because people are feeding them antibiotics and drugs and all this colorants and all this. One, it's a lot of fishtails. It's hearsay from the 80s, 90s, 2000s till today. Advances in aquaculture has really changed. If you're looking for a great aquaculture planet-friendly fish, you go for an RAS, which is a recirculatory aquaculture system, land-based aquaculture system. Oysters can't do that because we don't feed oysters. Oysters, Mother Nature feeds oysters in phytoplankton and zooplankton. So that's another thing that's why they're very low in the greenhouse gas emissions and energy inputs to create an ounce of protein because the ocean feeds the oyster. So it becomes this perfect little food, mussels and clams as well. We don't want to forget those. And seaweeds, because growers of oysters can grow seaweed at the same time in the same areas. Mm -hmm. Isotrophic seaweed, ocean farming is fantastic. It's better for the environment overall, and it just helps. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm look, but what I'm really looking for, not just sustain, sustainability is like the icing on the cake. What I'm looking for is great flavor, because that's what customers are looking for. They don't really... In the end, you could have the best story ever. And I tell all my chefs, you will be a storyteller first. You learn about the ingredients, number one. So you have to learn everything about the ingredient and tell that story before you even cook it. What salt are you using? What pepper are you using? What oil are you using? Is it olive oil? Is it extra virgin? What oil are you using? Pick it. Choose your ingredients. Tell the story. That's what you should be doing on your menus. And showing those stories, that's how you get customers. You can't get all the customers, nor do you want all the customers. You want customers who are excited about food, who are who want experiential moments. You want people that are like that and that love the food and want to listen to the stories of the food and take that time because they will end up telling those stories to their friends. That's how you get more people. That's how you expand the business is becoming knowledgeable about the ingredients that you're showcasing. There's, it's not, it's, Sometimes they were like, what's the secret of running a great restaurant? I go, just know your ingredients. That's really the secret of it when it comes down to it. Yeah, okay, you got to do your math eventually or get people to do your math for you and trust them. But if you know your ingredients and you can tell the story of the ingredients and build upon that because the oyster is one singular ingredient, but I can create a hundred different items with that one ingredient. So what I'm looking for in an oyster or a sustainable seafood product is flavor first. And then I will, if I like the flavor of a certain region, then I'll find the right people who are growing it sustainably and showcasing that way, even to the point of using product, because you got to use boxes, you got to ship stuff. How are you shipping it? Are you Mm -hmm. shipping it in a more sustainable way? Or are you using a Lamborghini to shop? (laughs) Nobody's driving a Lamborghini in the fishing world. Or like a private jet. (laughs) Or private jet to, to fly it exactly to the thing. What, how are you doing? So I kind of balance everything out as well. I live in Toronto. I can't run a restaurant on the 100-mile 100, 100 diet 
100 mile menu as it was so in fashion 10 years ago, 15 years ago, to be sustainable, you got to have it as a 100 mile diet. Can't do it. I have organic farms close to me. Yes. So I do a balance. My main menu item is oyster. It comes from the ocean. That's minimum 24 hour drive straight out from the ocean, from New York. Because I'm bringing in ocean product, I'm going to balance it with local vegetables, local proteins, and local wines and showcase that whole thing. So really, it's about the menu mix and the balance is how you make a great menu. And that's, again, when you learn your stories of your ingredients, write down the singular ingredient. If you learn those stories and tell those stories, that's how you make advantage over your competitors. Your competitors are going to tell their own story. You're going to have to tell your story, but you want to find the story of all your ingredients and tell those stories and your second fiddle to that. So I'm just showing you. Here you go. And that's only what's happening this season. If you play into the seasons as well, you can have a really fun time. I would change the menu at Starfish four times a year in the four seasons at Cayley Cottage, the Irish bar, really twice a year. Summer patio, winter patio. I love that. Yeah, patios are obviously a huge thing post-pandemic, during pandemic. And I love that it's all about knowing your story as well. And that not every person is meant to be your customer. No, I think a really important distinction. I fired customers. I've literally fired them. I had one co- one couple. They sat on my bar, and like, but they said, "Oh, they're having lobster." So I said, "Okay, good. We're gonna have, they're gonna have oysters, and then we're gonna split a lobster. We're going to go to the opera. Super, no problem." So got them their oysters. I told the kitchen, "Hey, put it on two separate plates. Split the lobster two separate plates because they're fancy. They're dressed. They're going to the opera." So I take it out. I go, I "Took the liberty of splitting the lobster for you. Hope you enjoy. Thank you." So I did the table check. How's this? How's everything? Oh, it's great, but you gave us two halves of two different lobsters. I'm like, what? I had no idea why this person said this. And she said it to me like four times because I was like, no, lobsters have a right hand and a left hand. They look different. That's why they're not symmetrical when they split them in half, left and right. They go, no, we know that. You just gave us two halves of two different lobsters. No, I didn't. So long story short is basically I said, listen, you, I've told you four times, five times now that, no, I didn't give you two halves of two different lobsters. So this is what's going to happen. You're going to go. I'm buying your dinner. I don't want you ever to come here again. I want you, however, to tell all of your friends. And I want to tell you that you're banned from starfish to never hear come here again. And I want you to tell them why. Because you think that I gave you two halves of two different lobsters, which for those people who think, that's terrible. Yeah, he must be an idiot. I don't want them in my restaurant. And the other people who say, that's There's crazy. No way. Right? Yeah. They're going to come in. I'll tell them the real story and they'll become good, fast customers because that's a crazy story. Thank you. You can leave now. Bye. Do you know Rush, the band? The band, yeah. So Getty Lee is sitting on the table behind watching me do this to the customer. He loves oysters. So he's like, Patty, come here. What's with the people? You had the lobsters out and everything. Ah, I don't know, Getty. I told, they said that I was giving them two halves of two different lobsters. He says, why would you do that? I'm like, I have no idea why. He goes, do you want me for to go up there and tell them to fuck off? I'm like, Getty never swears. <laughs> I'm like, that was worth the price of admission. No, thank you. I wanted to sit here and just enjoy your meal. I already told them they have to go and I'm actually going to clear them out now. So this is, it was literally one of those moments where it's, no, you can't have everyone in your restaurant. There are people that will drive you crazy, drive your staff crazy. Anyone who don't touch people. You learn this in kindergarten. 
don't touch people. Hmm. So you have customers that are, and they grab people. I'm like, yeah, you will not touch people. You peek your hands to yourself. That is your only warning. One more, you're out, like seriously, and you're going to get your bill. So there's things that customer, I want to run a class of how to dine out properly. It's one of those things that I know that people need to learn. So it's, you learn by going out many times and you learn as well by going out with the people that teach you. It's like eating oysters. Who taught you how to eat oysters? Many people, it's my grandfather, grandmother, my uncle, a friend of the family. I don't know. I was at a party and they were showing me. It, whoever taught you how to eat oysters is where you start and you just keep eating it the way you were shown. I strip that away and reteach people how to eat oysters as I would reteach them how to dine properly. Gosh, this is like so good. I think I'm going to have to have you on for a second time, to be honest with you. I don't think I've ever told that to anybody, but you have so many good stories <laughs> and oh so many good and such good people, really good people. And that's it's, so important. It's funny. When you open, I and I open up a restaurant again, the Getty Lee and the Rush story is huge. <laughs> I would get, they would come in and customers would realize, oh my God, it's Rush. And can I go over? No. I would, and as a restaurateur, no, you will not go over to another table and start a braiding. No, wait till they're done. And I will tell you what, because they're very happy to meet you. They want to meet their fans. Just let them eat. And all oh, right, that was a good, that was a good, no. I will tell you when it's fine. Now you can go. There you go. Mm-hmm. Getty, would you like, come on over and meet these folks here. It's a thing. And I'm also the type of person that doesn't know. I knew who Getty was and, and Rush was. But apart from that, really, there could be fancy people coming in all day long. And my servers and my staff would tell me, about, eh. so I would treat them exactly the same as everybody else. And I wouldn't treat them with really any other I knew that Rush wanted to have a nice back corner over here that just let them alone. And I wouldn't really bug them. It was really f- the third time they came in is when I went sideways. And I, this is when Neil came in as well. So it was Neil, Alex, and Getty, the three. Neil's passed, unfortunately. But before he passed, during while they were cutting vapor trails, they came into Starfish because they were cutting it down the street or whatever. And they would come in because they like oysters and fresh fish and nice food. And apparently our food was good. So they kept coming in. So the third time they come in and here comes the producer. There's six of them now on the table and Neil Parrott comes in. I'm like, the drummer is everyone's it's the professor. And I had two stories about for Neil to tell him, but I, how am I ever going to tell Neil Pert these stories? So they sit down and I lost it when their food was getting plated in the kitchen. Their dinner was coming up. Like, How's your ice? You're everything good. That's fine. So I'm in the kitchen, getting their kitchen, plating their food. I'm going to get their food on the radio because kitchen's always got radio on. They got Limelight is playing from Q107, which is our rock and roll station here in Toronto. One of their songs called Limelight that I grew up on. And I went, all right, I just got to say this now. So I went out to the table before. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Thank you very much for coming in again, Getty. Alex, thank you. Neil, thank you for joining us today. Your food is just getting plenty right now, but I've just, I had to say this. I apologize. I find it very surreal that you're actually here for the third time. Thank you. Enjoying our food. Thank you very much. But it's very surreal. In the kitchen, Q107 is playing Limelight right now. And I grew up listening to your music. I went to three of your concerts as a kid. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy your food. Bye. And I just said all this. And I ran up, exit stage left. And I just, and they were howling their pants up. They go, dude, we had no idea that you could, because you're quiet about everything. Like, yeah, yeah, I just want you to let you do what you do. Just uh-huh. eat food and do it. I don't ask for autographs or nothing like that. They go, well, you'll have to come to the concert. They go, I'll bring oysters. 
They go, you can do that? I go, you're a rock star? Yeah, you can have oysters. I can bring them backstage. That's no problem. So I back, I shock backstage for a rush whenever they're coming in town or whatnot type of thing. And when Neil was there, do you know Neil Pert? His his drum kit is sewn around him. He's got this wicked when you look when you really I'm just looking at the videos. Yeah. So he's got this circular kit. He's got one main and he's got the electronic one behind. He'll stand up and the stage turns around and sit back down. And everything is within arm reach. So I wanted to build my bar. Usually at the bar at the corner, I had this 90 degree bar and I wanted it to face the kitchen, which was right over there. I said, I want the bar to come out, but I want to cut a 45 off. I want to set two people on the 45, two people here and two people and the rest of the bar goes down there. And my construction guys are going, that's terrible. You want to work at the end of the bar? There's no flow to that. They go, I don't want flow. I want to be stuck at this end of the bar, shucking a thousand oysters a day or more. And I don't want no one to pass me. So I just want to be right here. It took me an hour to convince them about this because they were not going to go. I go, guys, it's my fucking bar. You're yeah, I'm paying you. <laughs> but I'm telling you, I go, okay, listen, Neil Pert. Yes. Rush. Yes. Neil Pert's drum kit. Yes. I want Neil Pert's drum kit on the corner with a 45 cut right there because I just want everything within my and reach. And they go, got it. No problem. So I told Neil this. He goes, I've never had the drum kit described so that you could build a bar. I go, it was painful, but they understood it because we brought it to you. Thank you. And it was just one of those things. So it was, it was, it was fun. It's a great story. And they're great. Again, they are great, great people. No. And the third time they came in as well, they go, they said, Patrick, do you think we can bring some wine? And I said to them, because I know that Getty Lee has the best wine cellar in the city beyond any restaurant. Getty Lee knows his wine. So I, and I knew this at this time, this is again, 2002, 2003. And I looked at him and I go, you think our food is good enough for your wine? Oh yeah, it is. And it was illegal then as well. So it was not legally allowed to bring, because bring your own bottle is a thing. Now you can bring it pretty well, bring it anywhere. But back then, no, it was totally legal. I thought when I go, yeah, you can do it. Cause you can afford the lawyers. <laughs> if I have to have, if I get done for this, that's 10 K I'm going, you're going to take care of that. So I was like, I didn't even say, yeah, you're good. No problem. So it was totally cool. And so there's so many stories like that comes into the restaurant trade. When you know your ingredient, you know, it well, you tell the story of the ingredient, your staff is happy with the ingredient. That's why the customer comes third, but they're number one in your heart. And that's how you make your way through this business. Again, if you want to make money, buy a franchise. <laughs> Need to know that as well. Plan in advance. And there's different methods of how you can build up from nothing and you can start with catering. And it's, that's another story. We'll go on for that. <laughs> I te- when I teach at school, I teach, literally, I have this, these classes, they're graduate course classes in food media and food tourism that are six day classes compressing of 14 weeks into six days over two weekends. So that means I have to teach Friday, sorry, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, eight hours a day. The first time I did this, an eight-hour class with a lunch break, so it's seven hours of lunch, there's no way I can talk for eight hours. Oh, yeah, I can talk for eight hours. <laughs> my first, oh, my God, really? Thank God I'm not taking notes. If I was in any of your classes, I would be like, I need to record. I need to record this, you. Is this recording? Oh, yeah, no. it's recording. Oh, no, I didn't press record. Oh, no. I would be devastated. I would be terribly devastated. But I'd also be like, what are you doing tonight? Let's just do this again. Yeah, we can do that. 
<laughs> but I do apologize. Oh no, it's it. This is really amazing material. It's going to be really fun to edit this and release it. I probably like your friend. I'm not going to take much out. Like I can't. There's just too much gold here. It's one of those things. Sorry in advance. As the good Canadians, we always apologize about things. Sorry in advance. Patrick talks a lot, but there's some pretty good stories there. Patty, I'm so excited that I met you. Thank you so much for being here and telling us. I feel like you should sell this with the kind of information that you're providing, but also people should just follow their passions and there's not money in everything. I'm working on those course ideas, but then again, shiny things happen and I get distracted. So what's going on with me this in three sections of the year is these tours. Like I did six trips from January till this month. I've done six trips, including Dubai and Boston, Chicago, and the masters all because of the oyster. In the next four months, I've got another six trips coming up. I just booked an event of Oyster Festival in North Carolina. And then in the latter half, it's Oyster season. So from September to December, it's ridiculous. So beyond teaching, it's every weekend. I can book myself out of Toronto pretty well every weekend now for festivals. So where are you located again? Seattle. Oh my God, Seattle's great. I did the Oyster Olympics there back in 1999 at Anthony's Homeport. That was before I was here. But... Yes. And it was before Anthony's is, is Anthony yeah. still on? Anthony's is. I love that. We won. This is a team. So, team Oyster Olympics was a team thing in Seattle. We love Seattle, the Pikes Place, Pikes Place Market, fabulous. The whole works. Love Seattle. That's all. That's all for today. Beautiful way to end it for today. And back again next month. No, when you're in the off season, which is not really a thing, obviously. There's different seasons. There's different things going on. You want to, you want to chat again? I'm very happy to chat again, whatever you like. Yes. And we're going to have to take a different deep dive because that's very exciting. You have a really cool life. And I know quite a few people that would really love to hear that you met all of Rush. I was not qualified for this. There you go. You were not. You still might not be, but here you are. I'm not qualified. No, that's it. So Patty sounds pretty damn qualified to me, but that's just the beauty of this whole podcast now, isn't it? He started from the bottom. Now he here. He learned as he went. He realized that he had a passion for a particular style of restaurant and serving a particular type of food. And he also went very, very heavy into what he loves, oysters, and developed so many cool passions and hobbies and amazing skill around that. All because he kept saying yes. He kept saying yes, even though he didn't know what he was always doing. That might not be advice for everybody, but I think it's very solid advice for everybody say yes and he said it a couple times he said yes knowing that he could figure it out after the fact right he could find the money to buy the restaurant he was going to be okay he had passion and he had all of that built-up experience that could directly translate in ways that he hadn't thought of before it's an incredible Incredible ability that he has. And I know that 
It's an ability that if you dive deep, you find the passion you want to pursue and you keep that passion, just start to formulate what it is that you want to go after and take steps towards that. Yes, it could take years and years, but if you're passionate about it, you'll love doing it. And that's a great, great life to live, friends. All right, so for your trivia today, we talk all about oysters. And if I'm being honest, I don't know exactly what an oyster is. How does it form? So here it is. Oyster shells are made of calcium carbonate. That could be a trivia question in itself. They're made of calcium carbonate. So they create these shells of calcium carbonate by secreting proteins and minerals from their mantle extracellularly, which is quite a word, extracellularly. This creates new layers of shell. Oysters don't shed their shell. They enlarge them as they grow, which is so cool. Thank you so much for being here, imposters. Episode number 48 this was, and what a lesson this was in restaurant tour entrepreneurship. I cannot wait for you to take all of these bits that you learned and apply them to whatever North Star goal you have on your horizon. I can be found with the links below. I'm most active on Instagram. Follow me there. I post a lot of very inspirational reels and posts, and I love chatting with all of you about what imposter syndrome means to you in your current venture, in your lives, in your career in your hobbies. I am currently on a journey to run a 50k 31 miles this summer. So I post about my journey there because I don't have an extensive running background. I literally started seriously exercising only a few years ago. Saying I feel not qualified to do this is an understatement, but I am learning as I go. I'm adapting as I go and I'm pushing myself and it's really, really fun to have you all along in the journey. So at YNQPod, YN as in Nancy Q Pod, follow me there and otherwise get in touch with the links below and I will share patties as well. Thank you again for being here and I will see you later. Bye.